Hey now, other people call me Paul. Hey, Dr. Matz. Hey, how's it going? Oh, good. You're a doctor, right? Yeah. Can you help me figure something out? Because like, not feeling well. Bio biochemistry basically rounds up to psychology, right? <laughs> no, I'm trying to understand what it is, why I like doing this podcast thing. Because if pretty much if you ask like anybody has ever known me in my entire life, mm-hmm. they would be pretty clear about the fact that if I have to choose between talking and not talking, I will choose not. If like. Hmm. From what I remember about social engagements, I would just find somewhere to hide, basically. So I'm, I'm asking for your uh, analysis of what it is about this. Why do I like talking to our people about this? Why is it fun? I don't well, get it. You get to see another side of people, and it's controlled. Maybe it's because you're in control. Oh, I don't know. No. That crossed my mind at one point, and I just, I just let it keep on walking. I don't, I didn't want to believe that. But you are a doctor. It might be true anyway. <laughs> my mom would say I'm not a real doctor, or maybe not to my face, but she would definitely think it. <laughs> moms again, hey moms. Hi. Do you have anything you want to share that's that you want the the world to psychoanalyze for us? Um, I definitely didn't. Say- First thing that came to mind. Um, <laughs> I don't. That would have been the best. Okay. Yeah. Well, we we have a guest today who may just compensate for my social clumsiness. Hmm. Um, we we shouldn't keep people waiting any longer. The music is fading back in, Becky. I'm looking forward to it. Hi, my name is Justin Carmel, and I feel jazzed about three-dimensional learning. Ooh. Hey, Justin, how are you doing with the uh, parts of life we used to take for granted? Are your um, basic needs being met these days? So basic needs are being met. I do miss people. Um, I think connectedness to people is a basic need. I, okay. I agree. Um, I do have my partner at home, so I, I I do appreciate the fact that there is some social interaction. I I think when I like I think back to when I was in graduate school and I lived alone, mm. and I if I was in graduate school now living alone, I would mm. not be as okay. Yeah, shout out to all those people in that phase of their life. Um, or postdoc or whatever by themselves it's got to be rough and and my partner is a graduate student so he has his own like he's trying to do a phd in the time of corona and oh his like he cannot do work at home he is a forensic chemist and so he works he works with fentanyl and heroin and all those derivatives so that's not work you can bring home because the dea would not smile upon that <laughs> Yeah, I think that connection to people is like right above the internet in uh, the hierarchy of needs. So get your internet and then get your social connections fentanyl. going on. <laughs> your fentanyl, yeah. I don't really understand why both you and Sonny do this to us, but it looks like you're coming to us from on board some kind of party yacht. There's <laughs> dollar bills 
in the air and empty champagne bottles. Miami is supposed to sink into the ocean with global warming in the next 10 years. So get it in. I may be teaching from a houseboat at some point. That's always the joke that Sonia and I have <laughs> that we'll be just teaching from a houseboat. So it's good that we know how to do uh, remote learning because within <laughs> might not be land in 10 years. <laughs> when I lived in Baltimore, I was really close to buying a houseboat and, and living on it. But the guy that I was going to buy it from in the bar that was by my house just disappeared one day. So then I never ended up going I think there. that's a but, safe so. bet, though. Like, buying <laughs> boats from people in bars is just, <laughs> it seems like one of the lists that you, sh- things you shouldn't do. He was, he was everything you can imagine he would be, he I, was. I can, I have a visual picture and I'm sure <laughs> that if we compared notes, they would be almost identical. Yeah. All right, well. For those of you just joining us, I don't think that actually happens on podcasts, but we're talking today with Dr. Justin Carmel of of Florida International University. I want to start out with a check of your self-awareness, Justin. What is the chemical composition of caramel? Oh, it's a a sugar. So the basis of it is sucrose, which is uh, a a molecular formula that I don't know right offhand, Uh, but I know glucose (laughs) is C6H12O6 because... My biology professor in undergrad used to drill that into us. Um, so it's some derivative of sugar that has been lightly toasted over gentle heating. <laughs> I thought you might know. Just you know, there's a whole I, I, there's a whole paper on it. That's and they mm-hmm. go pretty deep into it. Several thousand compounds. Yes. Formed by a small number of unselective and chemoselective reactions. And if you blink for two seconds, your caramel will burn. And <laughs> forty-five minutes. Standing over the stove for absolutely nothing. Is that true about you in Miami, or you can, can you be out in the sun, Justin? I can be out in the sun, in fact. <laughs> so you're not like caramel, it's just your name. I okay. am not like caramel, no. So we're clearly not doing a completely random sample of different universities here because you are our second guest representing Florida International University. Could you give us a flyover of what FIU is all about? Sure. So if you were to actually be in a plane, um, when, fun fact, when you are learning, when you are landing at Miami International Airport in Florida, you actually do fly over campus. Um, So it is possible to see FIU as you are landing into Miami. Um, It's very clear that buildings with big blue and gold FIU on them. FIU is the fourth largest university in the United States with about 60,000 total students, both undergraduate and graduate um, the other kicker is that 95% of them live off campus or at home. So we have four dorm buildings. That's it. Uh, and we're wow. building a fifth uh, that is slated to open in the fall of 2022. So none of them, very little of them, if any, live on campus. And so it's a very different uh, sort of mentality. It's a very different way of life here at FIU. We are a HSI or a Hispanic serving institution, which means that we do have a large number of students enrolled here that that identify as Hispanic or Latino or Latinx. And at last count, it's somewhere north of 75% of our students identify Mm. as Hispanic or Latinx, uh, which is fantastic. We are the largest grantor of bachelor's degrees to Latinx students in the Mm. country, um, which our home in South Florida is a is a hub for lots of Latinx things. We have um, lots of preeminent programs too here at FIU. So preeminent programs are kind of centers of excellence that the university has designated are you know cross cutting and cutting edge. 
And so uh, we have a number, I think we have nine preeminent centers at FIU, um, things like the Institute for the Environment, which again is really important down here in South Florida with the potential sea level rise, the coral reefs, and especially our biggest water filtration system, the Everglades, um, just right next door. Um, we also have a place called the um, Extreme Events Institute, which has they're aptly named WOW, which is Wall of Wind, which can actually, it is an artificial fan turbine that can model and actually produce uh, category five straight line winds. And so it's, it's at our engineering center. So you can test out structures at a full size scale to see whether they're going to be hurricane ready. Man, what happens if they're not? Uh, it's pretty epic. There are <laughs> videos online about testing things at the Wall of Wind. Um, houses just ripping apart, um, oh, things man. just exploding because of all of the, all of the wind shear that happens. Yikes. Can you pay money and go in there like a ride or? <laughs> um, it's actually housed in an airplane hangar. So one of the things they do, and you can actually see it from the street. So you can tell when they're testing because the, like the hangar doors are open and you can just see all the fan turbines going. Uh, but it actually points away from the street, which I guess is a good thing. So it doesn't blow cars <laughs> off the road unknowingly. How did you and Sonia end, end up there together? Did you handcuff yourselves together when you were job hunting? How did that work? They went out on a limb, they hired Sonia, and then immediately did another search for another ChemEd faculty member without tenuring or without uh, kind of seeing how one ChemEd hire was going to go. And so I'm just lucky enough and I feel so grateful that I, you know, I love this place. I think, you know, it's very much like a family and I'm super happy that I was able to, to, to be here with not only a great colleague, but one of my best friends in the community. Um, whose office is usually just right across the hall from me. Um, so we see each other on literally a daily basis. I feel like that's so important to have, I mean, obviously to have a friend is wonderful, but to have a colleague who understands the field um, so close, like it's really not often the case with deeper kinds of hires. And yeah. Um, yeah, I just feel like that must be so important. It, it definitely is. And I went to graduate school at Miami University, uh, which is not anywhere near FIU, even though Miami and Miami, but pro, pro tip, pro tip for the listeners, <laughs> pro tip, the University of Miami is the one that's actually in Miami, Florida, Miami University is in Oxford, Ohio, um, and they sell shirts at the bookstore that says uh, Miami was a university when Florida belonged to Spain. So Miami University was founded in 1809. Hmm. So it's been around a long time. But hmm. while I was there, um, my mentors, uh, Stacy Lowry-Bretz and Ellen Yazerski, they really made us aware of the fact that, you know, we are sometimes, it is possible that we are going to be the lone deeper faculty in a department. And mm -hmm. they really strived to get us as, even as graduate students, to create this collegial network so that we weren't alone. Even if we were alone at our universities, we were never alone in our field. And we mm -hmm. had people that we could reach out to and look to for advice. I don't want to lose anybody for an easy thing. Uh, so D when we throw Deber around, um, could you, I mean, so it's discipline-based education research, but could you kind of, uh, I don't know, give us your spin on what it really means? <laughs> Yeah, so to me, um, discipline-based education research is really speaking two languages. And I tell my graduate students this all the time. Most of us have a really solid foundation in 
kind of more bench or that wet science mm-hmm. knowledge, right? So we can talk the talk and walk the walk with, for me, the chemists that I deal with on a daily basis. Um, I am in mm-hmm. a chemistry department. I teach, I teach in this, I teach in the chemistry sequence. And so it's important that I can actually, you know, speak chemistry, but we also have this added talent or kind of other side to us where we can also talk and interface with those that are more in the education space. So those that are in K-12 or those that are in higher ed policy or educational policy um, studies. So we can actually kind of merge these two somewhat different fields and really walk the line trying to bring the best of what we know about education research and how students learn and tie it to these more difficult hard sciences biology chemistry and physics to make sure that we are developing curricula or programs or giving students opportunities so that they can succeed in these typically very difficult very high enrollment you know hard classes that everybody dreads Ah, that that was I like that that way of talking about it, Justin. Thanks. So you are uh, so you're an assistant professor of chemistry and biochemistry, and you also have an affiliation with something called the STEM Transformation Institute. What's that about? So the STEM Transformation Institute was founded a number of years ago by uh, a physicist by the name of Dr. Laird Kramer, um, and there was there has always been a huge physics education presence here at FIU. And we have slowly started growing into the other science and deeper fields. Mm. But the STEM Transformation Institute is uh, essentially this center for excellence that is really pushing to transform STEM education as we know it. And so the STEM Transformation Institute houses all of the staff that is related to our learning assistant program, but also is a way to collaborate across the 16 deeper faculty that currently we have here at FIU Mm. in Let me see if I get them all. Biology, chemistry, physics, math, computer science, and engineering. Mm. So we have lots and lots of deeper going on here at FIU. Cool. So part of your research focus has been on kind of what happens in um, what we'll talk about as lab-based courses as opposed to lecture-based courses. Becky also has some experience looking at both flavors. Um, Do students ever ask things like why do I have to take a lab class or or is it an easy sell all the time they ask Mm. students ask me all the time why is what we're doing in lab not related to what we're doing in lecture Mm. and at large universities that's pretty commonplace there's these huge enrollment courses I teach a section of 200 there's six other sections of the course this semester So trying to put 1,200 to 1,500 students, I remember it was something on the order of magnitude of like 2,000 to 2,500 at Michigan State. Like, there's no possible way that you can make sure everybody's lecture is coordinated with everybody's lab. But I also do know that that there are places that do more of kind of a studio type instruction that, you know, you might do... You know, some days in class, it might be lecture and a worksheet. Some days in class, it might be go to the bench tops and discover this for yourself. um, And then we'll talk about it afterwards. And so lecture and lab has always been this weird dichotomy, right? Especially at those universities where you get two different grades. Mm -hmm. Some universities, your lab grade is worked into your lecture grade. So you don't get that. You don't get two separate grades. Here at FIU, there are two separate classes. 
Um, they're not connected at all content wise. Um, you get, you get two separate grades for them. I was going to ask about grades. Do students kind of push back on that too. Or like, uh, if this is a lab, how are you going to grade me? Are you going to like stand over and watch me do everything I do? Or what if I do everything and my partner does nothing? What do they have those issues too? Yeah, you bring up a really good point. Um, so part of my research has been in the transformation of laboratory activities. And so I really ascribe to this notion of cooperative learning and problem-based learning and project-based or you know team-based learning, whatever acronym you want to attach to it. Mm-hmm. But essentially, usually people think is, of scientists, especially chemists, as just these like mad scientist types with crazy exploded hair uh, and safety goggles that just are working in the lab alone. And that is certainly not the case. I thought you were going to say exploded eyebrows for some reason. but um, <laughs> that, that usually happens too, right? If your hair is exploded, sometimes your eyebrows are exploded too. But, um, you know, this notion that scientists are not social beings or that science is not a social, there is no social aspect to the doing of science is really, really I'll say it wrong. Like Mm -hmm. it is flat out wrong because there is so much collaboration, especially here, wherever a particular person's expertise stops, they, they work with somebody else to kind of learn these new skills or to learn these things. So it really is a true collaborative environment. Um, And so to have our students have to be like, no, you must complete this lab exercise on your own and you must get a percent yield within 80% of what our target is. Mm. Good luck and may the odds be ever in your favor. And then we grade them on whether they get the right answer. Yeah. And it's like, mm. here is this thing that we talked about in lecture that should obviously work. And if you get it to work, congratulations, you get an A. But if you don't get it to work, you don't get an A. Mm -hmm. And that's not science. I think when I think back to my undergrad, you know, chem courses, I really tended to enjoy the lab courses a lot more than the lectures. That was sort of where I got to, you know, in that realm, kind of feel like a chemist. It wasn't super collaborative yet. I think, you know, a lot of it was still kind of independent, but I did still really enjoy it. And I wonder, do you, when you look back on your experience as a Undergrad, do you feel the same? Like, did you enjoy one more than the other? I mean, I think for, I should not make this kind of sweeping statement, but I think for all scientists, our favorite part of why we are scientists is the actual doing of science. Yeah. Lecture may or may not be doing science, but in the lab, you've got all this cool equipment. You've got all this fun glassware, which I was always notorious for breaking, (laughs) And you're you're mixing these things that everybody, like, you have to wear gloves. It seems really dangerous. It seems like you're on fear factor most of the time. You're playing with fire. You're playing with things that can dissolve your fingers. Like, it is a very interesting place. Mm -hmm. And that's important because it's where you get to do the stuff that you're learning about. And so, yes, as an undergrad, lab is my favorite. It still is my favorite part of Mm -hmm of chemistry, right? The fact that we can do these things. It's very hard to study, like we cannot go out into the population and look at, for example, evolution. We know that it takes place over time. There are some traits we can look at and look at populations, but you can't go into the lab and look at a snail and be like, evolve. 
and it will and it will and you can't do an experiment like that it takes mm-hmm. centuries to do that but in the chemistry lab we can take two Erlenmeyer flasks with clear solutions pour them together and a yellow precipitate forms and we can ask them what's happening we can ask them why it's happening we can ask them what it is and it's cool because you poured these two things that look like water together and all of a sudden there's this huge like mushroom cloud of yellow precipitate in your in your in your beaker Mm-hmm. What is happening? It is so cool. You can, you see that story recently, you can cut off this one snail's whole body from its head and it grows back the whole body in like, I think weeks or months. That's how I um, propagate all my succulents too. I thought Be- I thought Becky was going to say that's how I propagated my offspring was like cut off my finger. And... <laughs> I, was like, I wish it were that easy, you guys. No, not this is about me at all, but my... My my um, undergrad and grad school was in engineering, so I didn't I didn't even get a lab course in chemistry. I got like a semester or whatever. And um, but my shout out to my my grad school advisor. I basically started working with her through the undergrad lab that she was in. Like it was like a signal processing lab. She's also at Rochester now at RIT. Woohoo! That's where I grew up. <laughs> Just a shout out to Laurel. I don't know. I, I haven't told her about this yet, but maybe she'll listen. She's awesome. Um, I actually want to talk to her on here someday. That's great. But so, so okay, so labs um, yeah. and 3DL. It's, we're, we're pretty far into this. We haven't mentioned 3DL yet, but do you feel like you're kind of feasting on the proverbial low-hanging fruit when it comes to 3DL? It seems like, you know, a lot of the scientific practices in particular are a lot more um, applicable to a lab setting than a big old lecture. Am I oversimplifying or... Uh, you are not oversimplifying. I think uh, that is a very fair statement about what's going on. Um, the lab, especially in the sciences, is this inherently active physical thing. And so especially given the scientific practices, or I should say the scientific and engineering practices, are these very active, like, what are you doing with your knowledge? And this, the lab is the perfect place to be able to engage students in this in this unique space because they are physically doing things. This is where we're collecting data. This is where we're asking them to look at their data and maybe make it into a graph or a table or some sort of visual representation and understand what that what do these data mean and how does this fit in to answer the question that we might be looking at. And so giving students the exp- the actual experience to do science is part of why I research what I research in this transformation of laboratory learning, getting students to work together, giving them ill-structured procedures so that they can actually figure it out and make mistakes, right? We as scientists make mistakes all the time, right? It's not research unless something doesn't work right. Um, and so we experience failure we experience troubles and have to troubleshoot things all the time but we're curating these experiences for students that are prim and proper and neat and have very clean edges um i i certainly had noticed you know the types of questions that my students ask i when i was a ta and we used a traditional more traditional uh laboratory curriculum they would ask me and be like, okay, so the lab manual says I need a 250 milliliter Erlenmeyer flask. Can I use a 400 milliliter Erlenmeyer flask? And I'm like, does it hold water? 
then it's fine. The size doesn't matter. But they're so fixated on all of these details that are in the procedure that they're, they're so focused on the trees that they can't see the forest, right? Everything is new. Everything is foreign. And they just are so focused on doing it right and not messing up that they don't, they're not thinking at all. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. Um, so that all makes sense to me. Are we as a group then, are we trying to fit a square peg into a round hole by suggesting people try to do things like use scientific practices in lectures? Absolutely not. Vygotsky said that students learn by interacting with their world and interacting with others. It's the theory of social constructivism. There needs to be some modeling of these things that we are expecting our students to do. So to me, uh, I always see the lecture portions of the class where you can engage students in doing some of these things, right? Especially the analyzing and interpreting data or constructing an argument from evidence. You can certainly do that in the classroom because you can provide them data. You can provide them situations, but you have to model it for them. They can't just figure it out on their own. You know, students can't, like if you're expecting them to construct an argument and a student doesn't know what an argument is, they're kind of lost and they will rebel against you very wholeheartedly. (laughs) I pulled a a Larry King light. He said he didn't want to know anything about the people he talked to beforehand. I did some research into your into what you do. I did some research into your research, but I didn't really look past the titles. It's called, um, yeah, Larry King light. <laughs> yeah, so one of them is, um, and it's related to this what you're talking about, project based experiences. So one of them is called a glowing recommendation of project based cooperative laboratory activity to promote the use of scientific and engineering practices. So could you tell us like. Um, without going to Camianus about like the student experience that you designed there? Of course. So I lovingly refer to it as the glow stick lab. So the system that is used in commercial glow sticks, the things that you in plastic tubes that you snap and shake um, and dance at raves with and twirl above your head, those work on what's called a silume system. And it's a slightly different chemical system, but the, the, the process is the same. The kinetics work the same. And so it was a great way to be able to do this. And so a glowing recommendation is essentially our taking this very much scaffolded traditional laboratory experiment about kinetics of chemiluminescence and making it more project-based. So we gave them a formula to make their glow stick work. And we said, try and do different things with it. Try and make it an interesting color that you haven't seen before. Try and make two formulas for two different glow sticks, right? One that is a moderate brightness that lasts for longer than two minutes. And one, because you want to use it as a timer. And one that is the brightest you can for less than 10 seconds. And so we're giving them these constraints for them to try and make their own glow sticks. Um, and many of them are very successful. And they love it because it, it's a glow stick. Everybody loves glow mm-hmm. sticks. So it's really a visual lab. So And it was published mm-hmm. in JCAMED. I don't even remember the year now. My years are blurring together. But it was also featured on the cover of JCAMED, that issue, because um, glow sticks are pretty. I actually have the picture framed in my office. You gotta take a hook when you get one. Right. <laughs> um, we have these, we have these tools, mm-hmm. these protocols or whatever that we uh, talk about in a research in, as research tools. Mm-hmm. When you are planning activities like that, do you are those are those usable to help you 
um, as a practitioner actually uh, design learning experiences or are those strictly for us looking at other people's teaching and all that research side of things? So I've used the 3D lab to both characterize what is happening in the lab in or in a particular experience with you know, just the looking at the laboratory materials and checking off using the 3D lab criteria. Okay, does it do this? Does it do this? But it also helps us to remedy or to make better or craft these laboratory experiences because the 3D lab provides us a checklist. Be like, okay, so in order to analyze and interpret data, students should do, you know, P, R, Q, and S. Right. So we can make sure to give them guiding questions or allow them the space to do P, Q, R and S uh, so that they can mm-hmm. actually engage in this, in, you know, this meaningful analysis of data. For sure. So we like to bookend these shows with nonsense. So yes. we're at the other end now. I'm all about nonsense. Um, all right, cool. Mitch, we're going to try something new with you. Um, I'm going to. Well, Becky started out in the intro you have to listen to. She did some psychoanalysis of me. So we're going to try this with you. I'm going to say a word or a phrase, and you're going to say the first thing that comes to your mind. Don't worry about, fil- don't worry about filtering. Oh. I'll edit anything out that's profane or inappropriate. Anyway. Okay. Ready? Yes. Ready? Okay. Yes. <laughs> Three-dimensional learning. Active. Scientific practice. Doing modeling Tyra Banks like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love Tyra. That's like an old school reference. <laughs> you ready? Becky Matz. Loving. Oh. <laughs> she made the worst face. Listen, I miss oh my, my Becky. Oh. Come to my end. Okay. I don't know it's sinking. Slow. <laughs> it is slow. Okay. 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 I got a couple more. Poutine. A delicious. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Debbie agrees with you, by the way. All right. Um, of course she does. She's Canadian and she's correct. Yeah. <laughs> Self efficacy. Important. I'm sorry. These are like, I know, I know why you're doing this, but like, I don't, these words are not connected in any meaningful way, Paul. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Oh, three more. Oh, then Becky could add any if she wants. Okay. Theoretical framework. Necessary for, in order to understand your data. That might be a very much grad school <laughs> reference. Oh, we always need a theoretical framework. They're important. Thank you, mm. Stacey and Ellen. Mm. Best Deber ever. Oh, Chem Ed, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, things blow up in chemistry. Biology, it's just like frogs and plants. And <laughs> as Becky's eyes get large. <laughs> I love plants. And I mean, I'm a chemist by training, but I know you're a bio. I know, I, I know, I know. Sort of like had eyes for other disciplines, you know. Right, <laughs> right. And physics is just balls rolling down ramps and frictionless cows and everything. I mean, everybody can clearly agree to hate physics. Of That's course, right. absolutely. 
Okay, well, last one. Podcast. Awesome. And it's been an absolute pleasure <laughs> doing this podcast with you guys. Everyone is always shocked that it's not like the dentist. <laughs> and I hate the dentist. I do not enjoy the dentist. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And this is surely much, much, much more enjoyable than the dentist. This is actually even more enjoyable yeah. than a faculty meeting. Ooh. A little feather in our hat. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. You got any, you got any, you want to throw one at him, Becky? Or are we done with this? No, that's, that was plenty. That was, that was more a lot. than enough. <laughs> All right, well, Justin, I want to um, let you get on with your life, but we're going to add you to our list of people who we should sit down with again here. Um, Absolutely. I would be more than willing to talk about anything and everything you'd like to talk about. All right. Thanks for choosing the series of mouse clicks that brought you here. Of course. Instead of doing crossword puzzles or going on 8chan or other choices you could have made. TikTok. Thanks, Justin. <laughs>